The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So next week, our kids move into the new facilities over here. Uh, most of it's complete, and then we'll get furniture for the lobby, and so things are finally coming together. We appreciate uh, I, I want to thank Danny Cunningham. Where's Danny? Da- he's actually running. The, he's working on the computer back there this morning. Let's thank him. He has done so much work. That brother has spent hours and hours and hours overseeing this project along with cloud construction, so we're grateful for all of that. Uh, we leave for England again on uh, Friday, arrive Saturday, get treated Tuesday. So Tuesday, July 10th, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, July 12th is a big day. They do an MRI to determine if the disease is progressing or uh, has uh, stopped. And so we appreciate prayers as we go. Uh, God's a good God. We're trusting him every step of the way, and uh, we're just grateful. So I was in the gym this week, and one of the guys said, I think you're a liar. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, uh, I'm throwing up more weight. I think there's steroids in some of the stuff they're giving me right now. I mean, it's just, it's insane, really. I mean, I should be sick, and uh, to God's glory, I'm in there just pushing stuff around. So uh, we're going to keep doing that to his glory. So don't ask me if I'm still going to the gym. If you can't tell, then you don't need to ask me that question, okay? So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for a body we love and care for. Thank you for our Savior. We love you. Amen. So John records seven signs in his Gospels. We've seen in John chapter 20 over and over, he said, these things I've written in order that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he gave these seven signs. And this morning we look at the seventh of those signs. That's why I call it the final sign. And uh, John records this sign. And uh, it's the final sign that demonstrates Jesus' ultimate power and authority over life's greatest nemesis, and that's death. I've got a rather bizarre, or maybe you might think morbid thing that I enjoy doing, and that is uh, I love to walk through cemeteries. So sometimes we'll be on a vacation or traveling somewhere, and I'll pull the car over, and uh, I'll walk through a cemetery looking at stuff. Sometimes she'll come with me. Sometimes she'll stay in the car reading a book while I go and do my stuff out there. So, but, but, I mean, uh, I, every cemetery has a story to tell. And so I either take pictures. Actually, I don't take many pictures, but you can go online and you can read about uh, tombstones. I mean, it's amazing the tombstones are there. So uh, interesting stuff. And there's some really funny tombstones. There's some morbid tombstones. There are all kinds of things. So um, here are some tombstones that uh, I-, I found. Here rest uh, Pancharo or whatever his name is. He was a good husband, wonderful father, but a bad electrician. <laughs> That's a great statement. Um, rest in peace. Now you are in the Lord's arms. Lord, watch your wallet. Oh, Tomas must have been a, you know, a petty thief or something. And uh, here's a great one. He raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. <laughs> How do you like that on your tombstone? That's just a great statement. Um, rest in peace. A memory from all your sons except Ricardo, who didn't pay any money. <laughs> oh, Ricardo. Yep, he uh, was too chintzy to give up. And uh, here's another one, Don Under. Here lies my wife. I bid her goodbye. She rests in peace, and now so do I. <laughs> I mean, let me give you a little advice. Don't put that on your wife's tombstone, okay? That is not a good thing to say or to do. So what got me thinking about tombstones was I wonder what Lazarus' tombstone would look like. I, I mean, I do. I, I'm telling you, I've got kind of a morbid deal here. So uh, 
So I, I went to one of my administrative assistants and said, what do you think, can, can you help me out with this? And so we came up with this. Lazarus, born 5 BC, died 32 AD, scratched out, and then 45 AD ultimately was his death. I mean, by, by the way, uh, you may get that at three o'clock this afternoon, that was not real. We didn't find Lazarus this tombstone, okay? But I mean, wouldn't that what it, isn't that what it would look like? I mean, that's what it looked like, right? Because we're going to look at this section in John chapter 11 and in around 32 AD, sure enough, Lazarus dies, but he's resurrected. And I guarantee you, next time Lazarus got sick, the, uh, the prayer chain really lit up. We've got to pray for Lazarus. He's dying again. <laughs> and he did. He did. So let's look at John chapter 11 again, because in John chapter 11, it's really not a message about death. It's a message about life. This is, this is a whole scenario about life. And we read about the plan of Jesus first and foremost, even though it may sound like somebody else's plan. It says there was a certain man, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Let's stop right there. Bethany is a, a village that Jesus loved because some of his closest friends lived there. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany's a sleepy little village. If you go to the Mount of Olives, you look across the hilltop, it's only about a mile from there. It's only two miles from Jerusalem. So it's very close to Jerusalem that Jesus has just fled from because the Pharisees were seeking to kill him. And so uh, Lazarus is there and uh, he's dying. He's sick. Look at verse two. It, it was, uh, it was, and it was the, it was, what am I reading here? Verse two. And it was Mary my Bible says it was the Mary. That's why I'm so confused. There's a misprint here. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus. He's the one that was sick. And the sisters, therefore, sent to him. So they sent a messenger saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So there's a 911 message that goes out to Jesus. And they say, Lord, the one you love, Lazarus, he's sick. Lord, can you come? Lord, would you come? Lord, we, we need you right now. And this is a place, I mean, Jesus loved these people. They were friends, but they were like family. Bev's invented a word for friends who are like family. We call them framly, framly, F-R-A-M-L-Y. So framly, friends that are like family. And uh, he, he, this 911 call goes out and Lazarus is sick, Lazarus is dying. The sisters summon Jesus, but the plan of Jesus is different than the plan of the sisters. You read verse eleven four, and it's quite interesting. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Uh, Jesus, where did you get your medical training? Uh, Lazarus is going to die. Uh, this is a sickness not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. So was Jesus wrong? This is a sickness that's not in the now? Because to Jesus, physical death is not the end of life. It's just the beginning. Hey, he's, he's not dying. He's going to be more alive after he takes his last breath than ever, is what Jesus is saying. And this is done that God might be glorified. If you were with us several weeks ago, we preached to the man who's born blind. You remember the disciples look at Jesus and said, they see this guy who's been blind from birth. And I had my friend uh, Kenny Lyle up here and we did a little interview. He's the neuro-ophthalmologist. And we talked about the great transformation that take place in that man's brain. And uh, the disciples asked a question, Lord, is that man blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' answer was neither. He was born that way so God might be glorified. And so it's really the same language found in John 11. 11, 4, this is not a sickness unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified. He's saying, through this, boys, you're going to see who I am. That's really what he's saying. 
And so as we look at this, we see that his plan is different from the plan of the disciples, so, or Mary and Martha. So in chapter 11, verse 6, it says in 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he went straightway to Bethany. Is that what your Bible says? You got a Bible with you? You got an app with you? When he heard that Lazarus was sick... He stayed there two more days. Now, does that sound like compassion and care for you? I mean, he heard that Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick and he's dying and Jesus just stays where he is. And sometimes we want to scratch our head and say, I, I, I don't get it. If you got a 911 call that one of your very best friends is dying and you're requested to go up to Scott and White, I dare say for the vast majority of us, we'd hop in our car and head to Scott and White, right? I, I mean, our, our dear friends are family. They, they want us to be there, and so we're going to saddle up and we're going to go. I mean, that, that's what you do. But here, Jesus didn't go. Some say, well, he's insensitive. Some say he's lacking compassion. In my mind, I picture back in Bethany. I picture Mary and Martha. They, they look out the door wondering, where's Jesus? They, they walk down the pathway and say, Jesus, where are you? They, 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 they walk to the edge of the village of Bethany. It's just a small village, not a large population. And, and they, they're thinking, hurry up, Jesus, Lazarus is dying. If you don't get here soon, he, he's going to die unless you get here. You ever expect somebody to show up and they don't show up on time? Maybe it's a son or a daughter and they're out on a date or maybe it's somebody coming to visit or something and you've got the scheduled time and they don't come and you're frantically sending a text message or you're calling and there's no answer, there's no response and, and you become frantic. I, I picture this with Mary and Martha. They're frantic. I mean, they, their brother is dying. They know that Jesus can do something about it, but he doesn't show up. That happened to us a number of years ago when our daughter was in high school and uh, my dad found a used car that we could purchase back in New Orleans uh, from a friend of his. And so uh, we purchased that car and mom and dad decided dad would drive his car, mom would drive this car we just purchased. And, and so they're driving and they're supposed to be in. We heard from them when they were on this side of Houston and so it's about three hours and four hours go by and another hour goes by. and. I mean, you assume the worst, right? You assume, well, they're in the ER somewhere or, you know, they're on the side of the road. And sure enough, that's what happened. We get a phone call from somebody from TBC. Uh, my mom had fallen asleep and run off the road in this car that we had just purchased. And so one of the TBCers happened to come by. He had a cell phone. This is back in the day when everybody didn't have cell phones. And he called and said, Gary, don't be frantic. Your mom and dad are okay. But your mom fell asleep, ran off the road, and the car's kind of jacked up, but everybody's okay. So they finally made it to our house and said, Mom, what happened? She said, well, I was listening to one of your sermons on a cassette. <laughs> said, mama, don't you ever tell anybody that again. I almost killed my mama while she was driving the car, fell sound asleep, and just ran off the road. She... <sighs> but don't you think Mary and Martha were wondering where Jesus was? I mean, you ever think about that? They, they wonder. They're waiting and waiting and waiting and know Jesus. I don't know about you, but uh, I am not fond of waiting. I'm not fond of waiting. I, I resemble the little girl that went to kindergarten and she came home at the end of the day and the mom said, well, how'd it go? She said, not too good. I got to go back tomorrow. <laughs> Just impatient, right? And... Uh, if you're like I am and waiting is hard for you, 
you know, we're going back and forth to England for these treatments. And I decided, well, I need to know a little bit about English culture. And so I actually watched a little bit of the World Cup. It's like watching paint dry for my opinion, but I'm not a big soccer fan, but I figured I'd know a little bit so I can relate to these guys, you guys that are soccer players, gals. I mean, I apologize for that. But so then I decided, well, I need to know a little bit about cricket. I mean, they play cricket there too. And I've never seen a cricket match. I mean, I've seen highlights a little bit. And so I start reading a little bit about, about cricket. And as I'm reading it, they say they take a tea break in the middle of the match. And I said, that's not a sport. You don't take a tea break in the middle of a... And they wait. And sometimes they wait. I mean, they, they, they just wait and they sit down and have tea together. And I'm thinking, that is absolutely insane. So I don't know anything about cricket. <laughs> Waiting. Waiting. Sometimes God says, wait. Should I take that new job, God? Just Wait. Is this the right school for me, the right person to marry, the right career to pursue? Is it time for you to move? Is it time to buy that new house? Is it time for us to... And God says, wait. I don't mind a red light. I don't mind a green light. I don't like a caution light. I don't like the yellow. It means wait. Do I go? Do I stop? Do I... Well, I'm a decision maker. I, I go all the time. So, <laughs> But sometimes God's answer is, hey, Mary and Martha... Just wait. And you can see them frantically running about. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And so, interestingly enough, Jesus says, boys, let's go. Um, he's two days where he is. Then in verse 7, uh, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were seeking to stone you. And you want to go there again? And if you go to verse 11, he says, um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Death to Jesus is just sleep. It says that in 1 Corinthians 15, says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I mean, we move from one realm to the other. And to Jesus, death is, is like, like sleep. And, and by the way, this is a Greek euphemism for death, right? I mean, we find it in those other passages when it talks about somebody being asleep. We read it in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it in 1 Corinthians 11, we read it in 1 Thessalonians 5. It means, it means people die. And so he turns to them and he says, uh, I go that I may awaken out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. I imagine Jesus just rolls his eyes and thinks, I should have discipled somebody other than fishermen. I mean, they, still, they don't get it. He's falling asleep. Well, if he's falling asleep, he'll be okay. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus, therefore, said to them plainly. In the previous chapter, we see that same word for plainly being used. In, in uh, chapter 10, the, the Pharisees come to Christ and they say, hey, if you are really the Christ, plainly tell us. That's chapter 10, verse 24. We looked at it last week. Well, he's told them over and over and over again, right? He's, he's demonstrated by his works. He's said it with his words. And they say, tell us plainly. And now the disciples, they pick up on that same language. Tell us plainly. And so I, I really need Chase Bowers here. I wish I had a draw to do this because I think Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, boys, Lazarus is dead. I mean, he just said he's asleep, right? So he explained it to him. Lazarus, if he had a whiteboard, he'd be writing on it. Death, Lazarus, here. And he says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. What? 
Lazarus is dead and you're glad you weren't there? So that you'll believe. So let's go to him. Disciples, boys, I'm going to teach you something. I'm a teacher who has the power over life and death. That's why Lazarus is dead. And there's always an Eeyore in the group. You remember Eeyore? And it happens to be Thomas on this day. And Thomas says, let's go that we can die with him. Let's just go die. How's that for a great day? And Jesus says, I wish I had other than fishermen who are my disciples. I, I don't know. It, I, it may be a statement of faith as well. A lot of people see it as a negative. It may be, hey, if we're going to die, we're going to die. We're going to go with it. He may have been a realist. I don't know. But it sounds Eeyore-ish to me. And so what we see is the plan of Jesus trumping the plan of the sisters. Jesus had a plan. And his plan was to allow Lazarus to die so he could prove once again who he is. Specifically to the disciples, but to everybody else that was there. So Next, they experienced the pain of death. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So now we're four days after Lazarus has died. By the way, if you died in the first century, you were immediately placed in the grave. I mean, there's no embalming in those days for the Jews. And so you were buried within 24 hours of your death. So Lazarus goes, he's put in this cave into this grave. And uh, Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. Many of Mary and Martha's friends were there. They came to console them concerning their brother's death. They they were having what the Jews called a shiva, S-H-I-V-A. It's a word for seven. Yashiva is the word for sitting. So they came to sit. They came to sit. They came to mourn with them. Yeshiva, Shiva. They mourned for seven days today. Back in the first century, they mourned for 30 days. There was a 30-day period of mourning. So now they're mourning for these 30 days with Mary and Martha. Four days into it, Jesus pops into the scene. So Jesus arrives, and look at verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Yeah, I, I don't really know what to make out of all that verse. Bev and I talked about that at length the other day. And uh, Mary's the one who sat at the feet of Jesus. And now we see Mary waiting. And so some see Mary's the one waiting upon Jesus. Martha, the more impulsive one, the one who, you know, she's kind of like Peter. She speaks her mind. She goes places and, and she does things. And she's the one that said, Lord, tell Martha to get up and help me in the kitchen, etc." cetera. I, I, it may mean all that. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just reporting the facts. But I know this in verse 21, Martha says, Lord... If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What does that sound like to you? A little bit of blame, doesn't it? Hey, Lord, had you been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And a little later on, Mary comes on the scene. Look at verse 32. She says the exact same thing. Verse 32, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and she said to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. These sisters have been talking to one another. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. But Jesus didn't come. He disappointed them. They're they're playing the blame game, right? I mean, if you hadn't been here, brother had not died. God, if you really cared, is what they're saying. If you really cared, Jesus, if, if, if you would have just come when we called, when we asked you to come, this wouldn't have happened. You ever feel that way with God? Hey, Lord, if you'd showed up, the divorce wouldn't have happened. Hey, Lord, if you would have been here, that accident wouldn't have taken place. 
God, if you'd have been watching, the disease would not have spread. Hey, God, if, if you were on duty the way you say you're on duty, my son or daughter wouldn't be a prodigal right now. Hey, God, if... And we begin to question the goodness of God. The blame game starts. When, when did the blame game start? In the garden. So sin takes place. God says, what's happening here? And Adam says, it's me, God. It's me, the man. What's Adam say? He says, it's the woman you gave me. He blames two people. He blames God and Eve. And Eve says, Adam's right. It was me. I took the fruit. What does she do? It's the snake, God. It's the snake. And we've been blaming others ever since. There was a husband who was getting irritated with his wife because she wouldn't buy hearing aids and he was convinced that she was going hard of, hard of hearing and so he decided to test it one day and so uh, at night he put a chair across the living room and he whispered, can you hear me? No response. He moved closer to her and said, can you hear me now? No response. He moved a third time. Sweetie, can you hear me now? No response. He got back to back with her and said, can you hear me now? Finally, to his surprise and chagrin, she responded, for the fourth time, yes, I can hear you. <laughs> How many of you are married to that person? <laughs> yeah. And we love to blame, don't we? We love to blame. Hey, Lord, had you been here, Lazarus would still be alive. But you didn't show up. I'm disappointed with you, God. I don't know about you, but I've got a hard time questioning the goodness of God. I believe he's good all the time. If you're in prison right now, you would say, all the time, God is good, right? God is good. All the time. You remember when Job had everything taken away from him? What was his wife's counsel to him? Curse God and die. When I preached that message a number of years ago, I entitled, When Not to Listen to Your Wife. She does. She says, curse God and die. Remember Job's answer? Job said, you're talking like a foolish woman. By the way, I wouldn't call your wife a foolish woman if she misses that, but anyway, Job does. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? Should is God only good when things go our way? Is God only good when the cancer's taken away? Is God only good when, the, when, when things go right at home? Is God only good when... He's always good. He's always good. Job has just lost his family, his possessions, everything. And he said, we must accept what God sends our way. And... I find it quite unbecoming to live my life and think that I can question the goodness of God who sent his son to die on my behalf. Well, the text goes on and what we see in the pain of death is that Jesus talks about life. 
So Jesus looks at her in verse 23 and says, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said, I know in the last day he's going to rise again. They believed in the resurrection. They, they knew the Old Testament truth that, that one day there'd be resurrection. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Lord, yes, I do. I, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. The very words that John wrote for this whole gospel. And so what, what Mary is saying, I believe you are this great I am that we just sang about. You are the resurrection life. He doesn't say, I am a resurrection or I can resurrect. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Resurrection is me. Resurrection comes through me. I am the one who is resurrected. I am the one who can resurrect. I am the one who is life and who gives life. What I am going to do will prove who I am. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. This is the seventh of those seven signs. There are also seven I am statements. This is the fifth out of seven I am statements. We see in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Here, I am the resurrection of life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 15, I am the true vine. Over and over and over, Jesus is showing that he and the Father are one. He's just stated that in John chapter 10. Whenever they hear the I am statements, the Jews would pick up stones to kill him because they they knew what he was claiming, right? And so here he says, I am the resurrection. I am the one. We believe in the resurrection because of not, not the event, but because of the one who controls the event, our Savior. And so what we recognize is Jesus is making a claim, and it's a great claim because he says, even if you die, you shall live. My mom passed away from this earth in March of last year. She's alive right now. I've got a disease where 90% of the people who get metastatic cancer from ocular melanoma to the liver die in 12 months, 90%. That was June 8th for me. And if God takes me home, I know one day I'll be resurrected. And I also know the day I breathe my last breath, I'll be in the presence of the living God. So how can I walk around fearing death? Some of you will recognize... Uh, this lady, got any nurses out there? How many of you are nurses out there? Who is she? Florence Nightingale, right? Florence Nightingale, I mean, her story is amazing. During the war in Crimea, she went there and she functioned for three years in an amazing way. I mean, she faced death daily, caring for soldiers, caring for folks, and she became one who was really the mother of nursing in many ways, she's called. Do you know what happened to her after that? She, she was so convinced that she was going to die herself. At the age of 37, she kind of snapped. And she went to bed. And she stayed there for the next 53 years. She was convinced she was going to die. And she feared death so much, really until the final three years of her life, she rarely got out of the room that she was living in. I'll read what one author writes. Doctors could find nothing wrong with Florence. Examiners left her bedside shaking their heads. Most diagnosed her as a hopeless hypochondriac, dreading death, even obsessed by its imminence in her life. But then she lived and was a slave to death until she died at age 90. All those years fearing death. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and you know him as Savior, you don't have to fear death.
Amen? I'm not crazy about the process of death, I'll be honest with you. I'm not crazy about the process of dying. But I don't fear death. Because the moment we breathe our last and reach our hand out, it's the hand of our Savior who takes us into his presence. Now, that's figurative. I don't think he really reaches down and grabs our hand, but we will be in the presence of our Savior. If you want to study more on that, you go back to last October. We did a four-week series on eternity. And we saw what death is to those of us that know Christ. And then as we look at this passage, the next thing that happens is Jesus reaches out and he has compassion. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved within his spirit and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. But before he goes to see, the scriptures tell us our Savior wept. The word for weeping there is an interesting word. It's an intensive in the Greek language. This wasn't just shedding a few tears. It's not just shedding a few tears during worship. We sang that song, All Hail King Jesus. I've listened to that song almost every morning for the last three or four months, really since Easter. And I don't know, it just brings tears to my eyes. Uh, About two weeks ago, I'm going down 31st Street. I'm listening to this song. I come to a red light. I stop and I just kind of get lost. I'm raising both hands in my uh, car. And next thing I hear a horn. And uh, it was one of you. And the light was very green. And, uh, you know, it's just getting lost in worship for a moment. And I, I moved to tears down here with Bev, just thinking about praising the Savior. But here's the reality. Our Savior's moved to tears. And he wept with those that he loved. Scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we rejoice with those that rejoice and we mourn with those that mourn. And that's what we do. We shed tears. We show up and we mourn when death takes place. We, we, but we mourn with hope, right? We mourn with hope. And our Savior sheds a, a few tears along the way. He's actually weeping with them. Folks often ask me, Pastor Gray, what do you say when you go to the cemetery? What do you say when you go to the funeral home? What do you say when you go to the hospital room? What do you say when, I mean, I'm called often to persons just passed away. What, what do you tell the family that's there? I'm going to tell you the most important thing you can tell them is just showing up. Just being there. Their words, they're in a state of shock. They're not going to remember much of what you say. But they're, they're, they're going to feel that hug. And they're going to see your presence. And I go in there and I say a few words. And I pray. And then I'll leave. And a lot of us just showing up. Remember Father's Day? I just shared with you on Father's Day. The little girl who says, I'm at my piano recital, I'm all nervous. But I look and I see my dad there and I'm okay. Remember that? Just showing up. That's what Jesus did. He wept with them. He mourned with them. And he re- we rejoice with those that rejoice as well. Well, the power Jesus has put on display. Jesus says, uh, remove the stone. And Martha says, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench. She's been there for four days. How many, anybody have the King James out there? Mr. Wayne Ingram was there the last hour. He helped write the King James. He's the oldest guy in our church. I tease him all the time about that. And so uh, if you have a King James, you know what it says right there? Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Who would translate that? So it says, Lord, he stinketh. I mean, he'd been there four days. Lord, he stinketh. 
And so she's saying, Lord, what do you want us to move the stone for? And he said, didn't I say to you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they remove the stone and Jesus looks up and he prays, Father, this is a time for you to display your glory and to show those that are here that you sent me. And then Jesus does something that's amazing. He cries out, verse 43, with a loud voice. He's standing before this tomb and he screams out three words in the Greek language, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus. Come out. He only says it one time. The first thing you've got to recognize, if he had not said Lazarus and called him by name, when he said, come forth, every grave in that cemetery would have opened. If he just hollered, come out, it would have popped out right there. We were in Tanzania. I was teaching through this, and, and I said that with our, with our pastors there. There was immediate applause. I mean, they, they were just taken away by the majesty and the greatness of Jesus. I said, guys, recognize if he hadn't put Lazarus' name there, if he had come forth, then every grave would have popped open, every grave. But he says, Lazarus, come out. And look what the next verse says. He who had died came forth. He was bound head and feet with his wrappings. His face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, go and bind him before he smothers to death. He doesn't say that, but he's thinking that, right? Just don't stand there and look. Do something, guys. You know, Jesus, when he, when he addresses this, I mean, he, I mean, you don't call dead people out. Jesus, I mean, if there's not a rumble in that cave, Jesus is a fraud. But the minute there's a movement in the cave, Jesus is who he claimed to be. I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus is alive. He's alive. And because he is the resurrection and life, we don't have to grieve death. Well, if you were there and you saw that, how would you respond? I mean, how would you respond? You see, you know there's a dead man in there. He calls his name. He comes out. How would you respond? Well, I would mostly respond like verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who came to Mary and beheld what Jesus did, they believed in him. They believed in him. I mean, how could you not, right? A dead man now walks among you. How could you not believe in Jesus? So the first response is a response of belief. The second response, though, Verse 46, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. There's no belief there. In fact, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and said, what are we doing? This man's performing signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. He's saying, you know what? If they go and believe in him, we're going to lose our power, our prestige, our position. Everything we have is going to be gone because they're going to follow after him. The Romans are going to get rid of the nation and they're going to make everybody follow this guy named Jesus. So you know what we need to do? If you drop all the way down to verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. He just brought a dead man alive. They could care less. It was all about them. All about them. There's another dead man that came alive. It was Jesus. They want to kill him. He just resurrected a dead man. You don't think he can resurrect himself? And we look at this and we think, how could they? They just saw the greatest miracle that can happen. Uh, lungs that couldn't breathe, blood that didn't flow, a brain that didn't work. You go on and on with the body and now he's alive and they walk away and they say, we've got to kill him. Got to kill him. 
Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it so they could seize him. You know, today you meet people and say, if we could see a miracle, we'd believe. No, you wouldn't. These people saw a miracle right in front of their eyes and they didn't believe. There were miracles walking around. You're a miracle, I'm a miracle if you know Christ as Savior. So I look at all of this and think, what is John trying to teach us? This is the final sign. I think what John's teaching us, the dead live when they believe in the one who has power over death. That's what he's teaching us. He is the Christ. He has power over death. Believe in him. D.L. Moody was a great preacher of yesteryear. Started church and college and Bible college in Chicago. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I love that statement. At that moment, I shall have only gone up. That's all. I've left this clay tenement into a house that's immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious likeness. I was born of the flesh in 1837, born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh will die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. Amen and amen. Father, thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and life and we who place our faith in him, even if we die, we're alive. My friends, if you're here today and you're not sure if Christ is your savior, you risk spending eternity separated from him in a Christless place called hell. And so I invite you this morning to be like those who saw the resurrection of Lazarus and they believed in Jesus. Do you place your faith in him and ask him this day for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you know my Savior, how can we keep this good news to ourselves? Father, give us boldness with those that we work with, those that we play with, those that are neighbors, those that are friends, those that are family, to tell them the good news that there is life after death for those that believe. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Bless you.